Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest today is Thomas Dodman, the author of What Nostalgia Was, War, Empire, and the Time of a Deadly Emotion. And the book was published by the University of Chicago Press in 2018. Hi there, Thomas. Hello, Roxanne. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Oh, thank you for having me. Could you get us started by telling us a little bit more about yourself and what got you interested in working on France originally? Sure. So in retrospect, it almost feels as if this was always meant to be. Um, I went to French schools and did all of my schooling in the Francophone uh, system. And that was mostly down to my mother being a bit of a Francophile Hmm. and teaching in the French school in in Florence, which is where I grew up. In, In a way, I feel as if I'm a product of that French imperial nation state's mm-hmm. civilizing mission. And, and I'm a sort of pure product of the Republican ethos. And so French culture and history was what I grew up with. Now, I, I ended up almost taking uh, a side route. Well, I took a side route and almost ended up going elsewhere when I went to university in the UK. I, at the time, I thought of it as a flirt, but I think it really was a real love story with the Bolsheviks and the Russian Revolution. And so for a second, I almost traded Jacobins for Bolsheviks, um, did a lot of stuff, did my BA and my MA in, in Russian, late Imperial Russian and early Soviet history. Hmm. And when it came to, well, first of all, deciding if I wanted to be a historian, that's partly what redirected me towards French history, because my, my first mentor in London was uh, Rebecca Spang. And one of the most important things that she um, asked me to do was go to Paris, get into an archive and decide whether I had archive fever. <laughs> and so I went to Paris, got into the archive, got a complete kick out of being in the archives and realized, OK, this is something I want to do. So check that box. And then she encouraged me to to move to the States, um, and I went to the University of Chicago for my PhD and could have gone the Russian route, but as a friend very um, very sort of simply put it to me, he said, well, you, you, you know French and you don't know Russian, and as far as I know, that those, those evening language lessons in Russian aren't going so well. Um, so that was that. And the other thing was, well, where do you want to spend your research time, in, in Paris or Aix-en-Provence or, or, or in, in Moscow or somewhere else in Siberia? And so that settled things very quickly, and I, and I rapidly sort of moved back to, to French history and found the sort of ideal um, fr- uh, French history uh, committee in, at Chicago with Jan Gold. Bill Sewell, Laura Auslander, and together with Moish Poustin, they formed, formed my dissertation committee. And so very quickly, I became a French historian. And the focus on nostalgia, how did that come? The nostalgia thing came at the end, and this is something that you, you will be familiar with, given your own um, trajectory. It came at the end of a seminar on memory studies and mm. memory and, and history, which was a, a joint seminar taught by Laura Auslander and, and Michael Geyer and French and German perspectives. And right at the end of that seminar, the very last session was on memory disorders, memory troubles. And there I read um, Svetlana Boehm's book, which you know well um, uh, as well. And so I stumbled across these stories in the footnotes to that book where she mentions these French soldiers who who apparently died of nostalgia back in the the Mm -hmm. revolutionary epoch. And so I thought, okay, I have to write a seminar paper. This sounds like something fun and I need an excuse to go to Paris and do some research. And so um, I'm going to go to Paris to these military medical archives that apparently um, track down this, this phenomenon in the French army. And so I went to Paris for 10 days got into these archives, again, completely fortuitously, because it was a very difficult thing to do at the time, and all of a sudden realized, my gosh, I have uh, I have material here for an empirical seminar paper that eventually sort of snowballed into um, a dissertation and eventually a book. So it was really a sort of chance um, encounter with a topic, with the archives, and with something that enabled me then to thread into this object other things that I was more interested in um, that we probably can come back to. So Thomas, nostalgia is a a topic, a field of interest for 
historians and across you know multiple disciplines. And yet your book sort of explores this relatively well uncharted, <laughs> neglected territory in the in the history of thinking about nostalgia. I sort of think of it as a as a prequel in a way. Could you say a little bit about how this book is positioned in relationship to what might already be familiar to listeners? Yes. Well, when when I started, I had a much clearer idea about what I did not want to do. Mm-hmm. The topic seemed to lend itself to this this kind of history that I wanted to do because of the fact that it could be approached through an empirical lens, through an archival approach. The, there were archival sources that would enable me to tell the story not just through um, novels, not just through um, printed sources that circulated among a very restricted number of educated people, mm-hmm. but this was actually a phenomenon that was affecting large sectors of the population in a sociologically meaningful fashion. With the archival empirical approach, there was a way of telling a story that nostalgia had a hist- has a history itself and that it doesn't have to taint the way we view the past. On the contrary, by doing, by historicizing this object, we can denaturalize it, tell it like it isn't, rather than letting it tell the past like it wasn't, um, and, and, and actually sort of explore many other things through this object, which is really what I really wanted to do. The book really stands, I guess, at the nexus of military history, foreign empire, history of medicine, History of emotions, and I'm sure I'm not covering all of the intersections here. <laughs> but just to talk about the history of emotions for a moment, if if you could just tell us a little bit about how you see the book intervening in what has become a really kind of proliferating field. Yeah, what you were mentioning just before is really what, what I like about the project. Studying nostalgia enabled me to do what... I like to think of as a form of histoire totale, as a kind of, mm. not a totalizing history, but a history that refuses to parse out segments and treat them in isolation mm-hmm. from one another. And so I felt that what I had here was a, a, an objet d'histoire, a, a problématique that, that would enable me, that only made sense if contextualized deeply in many contexts, and hence the, the military, the medical, the colonial, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, emotions, obviously, is one of those aspects, um, and it came into the project rather late. Um, I, I, I sort of, I, I caught the wave of the, the, the sort of cresting, rising wave of the history of emotions um, as it was forming, and there's a certain instrumental intent in, in, in doing that. This, it seemed like something exciting that, that was happening and that it's always good to, 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 to be on a wave of historiographical renewal. Sure. But obviously this made a lot of sense too. And nostalgia is uh, uh, something that we think of as a form of affect, a, a feeling, an emotion. I mean, the, the, those words get, get somewhat slippery and overlap. I have to say, I'm not, even though I, I, I go to History of Emotions conferences, I contribute to books on History of Emotions, this is obviously something that I now do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's definitely not, for me, the main focus of the book. It's not the, the thing that most attracted me in, in, in the project as it, as it developed. Um, the way I view it is more um, that what I try to do is a history that does not leave the emotions out mm-hmm. rather than a history of emotions per se. And in that respect, I... I I, I see myself following more in, in a certain French tradition that is partly that of the Annales, partly that of Alain Corbin's work, and so the history of sensibilité more, more, more in general. So in a very modest way, I hope the book makes a contribution to raising awareness about the fact that we, we do need to historicize affective categories. We do need to find the ways to integrate this dimension of historical actors into our protocols of historical research. And that's really what I'm much more interested in, in, in pursuing with this book and with future projects, uh, rather than the history of an emotion per se, which is interesting, but, but is, is, is relatively limited in, in its purchase. The book, Thomas, covers this span of 200 years. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the start point, specifically 1688. But before we do... I just wondered if you wanted to say something about the broad periodization of the book and the bookends, the late 17th to the late 19th century. Yeah, sure. Um, I guess the the first thing I I would want to say is that I I hope I don't say 
anything or at least too many things that are outrageously wrong because both the beginning and the end are somewhat out of my domain of expertise or at least where comfort, especially the beginning, which I'm not at all a specialist of late 17th century um, Alsace and, and, and Switzerland, which is really um, not what I expected to be, to be, to be writing about. Um, and the end also sort of late 19th century France, it's closer to, to what I know, but, but it's, um, it's also a little bit um, out of my, my, my stricter domain of, of, of chronological competence. More importantly, I guess, what, I, what interested me about those, uh, those two um, limit dates, um, which you know, they were imposed upon me by the, the, the object of study. That's when nostalgia is born and when I argue it, it, it ends its first life as a, as a medical uh, category. Mm-hmm. It does somewhat kind of roughly map onto what I would view as the first phase or at least the first full phase of development of what I'm calling the sort of capitalist epoch, first phase of modernity, shall we say. Mm-hmm. And so we start with the late 17th century general crisis, um, as economic historians um, call it, a period of, of instability, of um, economic transformations, of social transformations, of of environmental transformations, um, as some of the more recent research has, has pointed to. And we end with the quantum leap of the second industrial revolution, the turn of the 19th, early 20th century, and the passage into um, sort of fully-fledged capitalist modernity in the North Atlantic world. In the introduction to the book, Thomas, you make the point that, and I'm quoting you here, that it undoubtedly was the French that paid the highest tribute to the disease in this period. Yep. Whenever I'm working on something and someone says, what's French about this? <laughs> or what is distinctly French about this? It's a question I always find so frustrating. And yet here I am, the host of a French studies podcast, and I find myself asking this question all the time. So what was so French about nostalgia in the period that you're looking at in the book? Well, the, the, the flippant response to that is that you know, who but the French could be so <laughs> much victims of nostalgia, right? Um, more seriously, um, this is a problem that I grappled with throughout the dissertation and throughout the revisions um, uh, leading into the book, and that I don't think I have fully quite um, squared. Um, and I, that comes across in some of the first reviews of the book that, that, that have come out. Nostalgia is a, is a general phenomenon. It's not an exclusively French phenomenon. It is tied to the transformations of capitalist modernity. And you, we can say that because it's not just something that happens in France. This, this, this pathological form of nostalgia that I track is something that we see in France, but also in in armies across Europe, um, North America, you see it in the colonies um, and in various other parts of the world um, as well. Now, that said, it does acquire a whole very special kind of importance in France and elicits a lot more interest, a lot more literature, a lot more research for a number of reasons. And I tried to enumerate those in in the book. Some of them are very simple and, and practical, um, including the fact that France has one of the sort of largest um, standing armies with, of conscripts from, from the French Revolution, the Napoleonic Wars onwards, and this is very much part of the French um, tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's connected, I argue, to, to, to nostalgia. This also means that um, from, from very early, from the 17th century, the French army has the leading military medical uh, corps um, um, in the world. Mm -hmm. This corps has a vested interest in finding new diseases upon which it can exert its expertise as a way of claiming professional recognition. There are are other reasons that that have to do with the the peculiar political culture of a country that um, was a pioneer in forms of democratization with the, the, the revolution and, and, and extending sovereignty and, 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 and human rights, etc., etc., but at, that at the same time was reimposing forms of what I would call abstract heteronomy or forms of domination that are impersonal, that have to coexist with a legal system that otherwise is predicated on the idea of universal equality and, 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 and rights for everyone. So this is something that I thought hap- you can see happening in France more so than elsewhere. The other place where it would happen, and it did happen, and I wish I'd had more 
more time, more energy, more will to actually do the research is, of course, in the in the U.S. in the United States. Um, and of course, the last major war um, where nostalgia is is sort of recorded on a systematic basis by military um, doctors is the American Civil War. Mm-hmm. Um, and and there you have a similar kind of situation of soldiers who are conscripts but endowed with inalienable rights, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and find themselves in forms of domination that otherwise should not be um, in, inflicted upon them. The first chapter of the book, Thomas, Nostalgia in 1688, is a kind of wonderful origin story of the term and the diagnosis. And it turns around this figure, Johannes Hofer. So tell us about Johannes Hofer and why he's so important to this study. Um, this is, as you say, it's a wonderful story because we actually have the, the invention of a, of a word. And, and, and it's important to, to ask ourselves this question because Hoffer hesitated whether, as to whether he should call this nostalgia or philopatridomania or nozo something. I'm, I'm forgetting them now. but Way less marketable. <laughs> way less marketable. And so and in doing the research, I often found myself doing counterfactual histories of what would it be? What, what would the world look like if he had chosen something a lot less pleasing to the ear than, than, than nostalgia? But in any case, um, I really got interested in doing a kind of an attempt at a micro history of um, the world in which uh, Johannes Hofer um, evolved. And what's interesting about him is that he's an otherwise mm, fairly unremarkable figure who doesn't leave much of a trace in history, except for the fact that he's the longest standing mayor of his hometown of Mulhouse, which I suppose <laughs> does give him some... Um, historical clout. But but in the medical world profession, he, he definitely is not one of the major figures at all of the, the, the this age of, important age of revolution in medical knowledge. Very quickly, I came to the conclusion that I would only find a solution to why he decided to invent nostalgia by looking at it uh, contextually. What were the kind of things that he was worrying about? And and it turns out that this is a moment of major um, anxiety in in that part of, of Europe. Um, Mulhouse's independence depends on Swiss mercenary soldiers who are sent to Mulhouse to protect it um, whenever the, the city is, is at risk, mostly mm-hmm. from Basel, which is right nearby. And that there there have been reports of these Swiss guards succumbing to a, a form of melancholia, and that that this is a real challenge to the survival of his of his hometown. Um, and so he basically invents a medical category, making the point very explicitly that it can be cured, that it is a that it is something that that you can recover from given the right uh, kind of medical treatment, precisely to undercut the kind of problems that the, the mercenary system, um, the Swiss Guard mercenary system, is, is, is getting itself into at the time with the transformations in military recruitment that, that were ongoing. I think the thing that surprised me most about the sort of origin story is, yeah, how rooted it is in the experience of war. And yeah. the idea that you emphasize that, well, throughout the book, that nostalgia is a, a disease or a, a pathology that doesn't just characterize soldiers, but is unique or has a specific history, uh, a specific military history, because it requires isolation. I think your words are isolation and estrangement in a foreign land, that it's about spatial displacement coupled with social disembedding. Can you say a little bit yep. more about this social disembedding? Right. The first thing I guess to say is that for Hoffer, this is not explicitly a military disease. And that's an important point for him because he's trying to um, suggest that Swiss soldiers are not bound to suffer from this. This is something that is, I think he sees is tied to the, the social transformations that are leading people to move further and further away from their homes, their networks of sociability, and oftentimes not just for seasonal migration, but increasingly for, for durable forms of, of displacement. And that that's what's leading them to feel disembedded, what I call disembedded, from the kind of networks of close-knit um, sociabilities that they, that they may have known up until up until that point. The army ends up being emblematic of this, um, and I think this is where the army really serves as a sort of laboratory for the for the, the transformations of modern society. Um, mm. And there's some one, there's a wonderful book by uh, Alain Ehrenberg on this, and, and obviously Foucault's Discipline and Punish is to a certain extent talking about this um, too. Um, and what, what I mean by that is that, and this is the moment when armies cease to be 
basically traveling societies where there were men, women, children, um, traveling all together in, in, in sort of, I think of it as a movable feast kind of thing. It's not the right atmosphere, not the right image, but, but it's, it's, um, it's, it, it's, it's a whole society basically moving along from one campaign to the other. Campaigns are, are of short duration. They, they, they stop for the winter, they pick up again, and it's a sort of normal, um, part of, of, of life in many ways. Um, and, and we move from there to armies that are much more separate from society. There's a distinction between the military sphere and the civilian sphere, it becomes a much more male universe and becomes, a, a, of course, a, a universe of, of strict discipline and drill um, where soldiers are trained to become somebody else in many ways um, than, than they would have been than who they would have been before. Um, and this is a very alienating experience for, 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 for many of them. Um, and, and it's in particular the case for, for these, these Swiss guards who up until that time had been able to, um, on a contractual basis, um, pledge their allegiance to a particular um, um, foreign um, army, um, but then go home whenever they wanted. Um, well, not whenever they wanted, but, but with the expectation mm. that, they, that they would be going home at the end. And they kept their, their own esprit de corps. They had their own uniforms. They, they, they were often recruited locally in, in sort of bands of brothers, if you want. And that all comes to an end around about this, this, this moment when they are integrated in a much more systematic, much more mm. um, quantified, regimented kind of fashion in the, the, the French army in particular. And, and, and so basically what you have here is a sort of laboratory of um, microcosm experience of that, that kind of modern anomie, modern, modern and anonymity life, of, sort of anonymous life of modernity that you then see reproduced in colonial worlds, in the city, of course, um, in, in, in the sphere of consumption later on um, in, in the 19th century. Um, and that I thought was it was worth um, sort of telling this story um, to try to to try to also sort of bring military history out of military history, so to say, mm -hmm. or rather the, the history of the history of war and, and of conflict out of its specific locus in, in, in military history to say that this is actually a social phenomenon of, of significant um, social impact. The second chapter of the book, Thomas, really follows. I love the formulation that you use, um, the phrase nostalgia is a, a trending medical term um, through the 18th century and, and what you describe as this medical republic of letters. So that chapter is also kind of, there's this sort of gift at the beginning of the chapter of the convoluted story of editions of offers study. And then what becomes of the diagnosis and the term through the 18th century. So do you want to give us a sense of what some of the broad transformations of that, of that period yeah. are? Sure. Yeah. And, and, and what you were mentioning about the, the, the convoluted editorial history of the book is, is just one of these wonderful gifts that the archives sometimes throw up. And at one point I, I realized wait a minute, this is not the edition of Hoffer's dissertation that I was working on last week. What, what's happened? And, and why, why is it antedated by 10 years when he was only nine years old? This, this is there's something very wrong. And so what that, um, that speaks to is the, uh, a regime of, of editorial production that is very different to our own, where, where notions of authorial property and ownership are very different to the ones that we have today. And so what you actually have here is a is a kind of very a very empirical case of the death of the author, so to say, and, and the, the the wondrous afterlife of, of of a text. What I try to do in this chapter, which is really one of the the intellectual history chapters of the book, it's really mm -hmm. it's pitched at a level of conceptual history that departs in some ways from the the, the first chapter and in methodologically, and and certainly much more so from the subsequent chapters in the book. But it really just tries to trace this meandering trajectory of the concept of nostalgia as it is both splintered and eventually right at the end recrystallizes throughout the, the medical Republic of letters in the 18th century. And, and broadly speaking, it follows sort of two tracks that the two schools of medical thought um, that I, that I can identify um, vie for who has the better way or the more adequate way of understanding nostalgia. On the one hand, you have a much more materialist, physiological understanding of nostalgia as a, almost as an organic disease caused by things like pressure differentials when you go up and down a mountain mm. or, um, or 
the sort of atmospheric um, um, pressure or, or just the, the foul atmospheres, which was obviously one of the obsessions of, of, of the contagious medicine of the, of the time. Um, and on the other hand, a form of medicine that pays a more sensationalist form of medicine that pays attention to the emotions and to the psyche and that views this much more as a psychological problem that has to do with people's um, sense of displacement, their, their, their affective um, emotional attachment to, to, to something that they have lost and that they therefore might um, long, long for. And, um, and so I, I sort of track these two parallel traditions um, that eventually, I argue, coalesce or at least sort of um, find a, a way of coexisting in the medical practice of uh, medical officers. So um, if the chapter largely follows debates at, at the level of medical theory, what we all, those of us who are somewhat interested in medical history, know is that what, what, what's crucial about the late 18th century, early 19th century in France in particular is the, the, the switch to medical practice and that um, it, these are no longer sort of armchair doctors debating things. These are actually doctors that have their hands dirty, quite literally, because they're in, in an anatomical theater and they've got surgery going on, etc. These debates about whether nostalgia is caused by the animal spirits in the blood or about pressure differentials or simply because you're longing for something and this is a form of, 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 of ideational sort of contagion between between mm -hmm. people, um, those, those become relatively mute points, irrelevant. Um, what matters is that something's going wrong, this soldier is suffering, we need to do something about it. And so what are the kind of therapeutic protocols, uh, the prophylactic measures, the therapeutic protocols that we can put in place? What is the kind of legislation that we need to implement, that we need to get the government to implement in order to make sure that this is not a problem that is going to be too debilitating to the army? So the chapter ends with a, a switch to the realm of practice, which is a more in general, something that I wanted the book to develop a sort of theory of practice, nostalgia as a form of practice, not just a representation, not just a, a, an idea or a concept, and that therefore get us to, I think, a different level of historical experience, a different level of, of historical research that I switched to in chapters three and four with the more empirical archival basis as opposed to the kind of cultural um, sources, published material that I'd been studying up until that point. Right. And then these next two chapters, three and four, chapter three focuses on the military doctor's perspective. Right. And then the fourth chapter focuses on the illness narratives and accounts and experiences of soldiers. In that third chapter, I was really struck by your characterization of nostalgia as you trace its history through the period of the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars as a new, and I'm quoting here, actant of war. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate on that, uh, that phrase and what that means for you? Yeah, I'm not sure I can, or at least <laughs> to your satisfaction, but I'll try. Um, I like this it. is some. Okay, well, but this is this is actually this is where the project all started. The, the the first version of the seminar paper that I wrote back in 2003 was on the the, the French Revolutionary era soldiers, the doctors of the of, of this period. And at the time, I was reading some Latour, and and um, and um, mm -hmm. the, that's where the notion of the actant, for at least for me, come comes from. I wanted to try to give a sense, because this is such an immaterial thing that is somewhat difficult to understand as a, as a, as a force actually impinging upon people and, and, and that might be causing historical chains of events, I wanted to actually try to give nostalgia some form of, some form of agency, so to say. You go on in the book, Thomas, from this emphasis on doctors, medical practitioners, the diagnosis, to the sensorial and affective world of soldiers right. looking at these different narratives, illness narratives, uh, during the period uh, of the Napoleonic Wars. And I guess I want to just ask you about the narratives as a genre. Is there a kind of, well, is that even a good word to describe them? Is there a kind of proliferation of a certain type of illness narrative specific to nostalgia in this period? Um, I would say yes. Uh, well, it's a little bit complicated. What, what there certainly is, um, and I was very glad to find, um, is a proliferation of ego document mm. narratives, letters, memoirs, um, journals, 
Um, as, a, as a historian of late 18th, early 19th century, I, I, I had a lot of envy. I have a lot of envy of 20th century historians who, who, who have an abundance of these kind of um, subjective sources uh, available, particularly World War One is a classic example where you can really sort of um, get at soldiers' experiences in the trenches, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we don't have as much, obviously, for, for societies that are a lot less literate, um, such as early 19th century um, um, France. But what I found was that there still is a lot. And that this is really sort of the first moment of, of a sort of abundance of production. Now, as to whether these are medical narratives or illness narratives, rather, I should say, that's obviously a little bit more um, difficult of an argument um, to make. I ended up having to read a lot between the lines because there are very few soldiers who actually speak about their experience of nostalgia explicitly. Um, this is not something you talk about with your parents or with your loved ones um, to whom you write letters um, from the from the front line. The first inclination um, that you get that nostalgia may change and may cease to be pathological and become a kind of coping mechanism you find in the memoirs of Napoleonic uh, veterans. Um, so th those people who up until that point had suffered from nostalgia or maybe could have died of nostalgia, once the war is over and they, they are um, left bereft and, and they, they, don't, they don't have much to, to, to look forward to in, in restoration France. They're somewhat social, they're social pariahs to a certain extent. Many of them are in, in very difficult financial situations. Um, what they're left with is um, the forms of sociability that they had nonetheless managed to recreate for themselves in the army. Um, and so what, they, what doctors end up noting um, is a, what they at the time call a very strange form of nostalgia for the regiment that seems to be sustaining these veterans um, after the end of after the end of the war. That's when I argue you get the this, that's the first at least that I could find the first historical example of our contemporary nostalgia as a coping mechanism to change rather than uh, a pathological response to to change. And it's also the moment the first moment when you begin to see. Nostalgia thought of more in temporal terms rather than in than in spatial terms as 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 a longing for a, a period of your life or something that happened before and that is idealized as a, as a as a as a nicer past rather than a, a specific place that you would want to go back to. After this pairing of chapters on the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic period, the pairing of you know doctors and practitioners and then soldiers' accounts, the book moves on moves into a golden age for nostalgia. Right. This period of uh, the 19th century, looking at how the term, which is really located in this kind of medical discourse, becomes a broader concept and how right. it, as you argue, gradually became demedicalized and naturalized. So can you tell us a little bit about how that evolution unfolds in this period of the 19th century? Right. So this is a it's a troublesome chapter because it's sort of sandwiched between the two big empirical cases, sort of um, the empirical um, test cases of the French Revolutionary Wars and then the colonization of Algeria. I gesture a little bit to the to the, the, the fact that, that there is a there is a, a sort of co-opting to a certain extent of, of the medical literature of nostalgia in forms of romantic uh, literature and aesthetics more in general um, that initiate a partial or at least one other contributing factor to a, a, a slow burning fizzling out of the medical nostalgia, pathological nostalgia leading into the more benign form of nostalgia that we uh, are familiar with. This is one factor among um, many others. Um, in many ways, what, what's happening um, here, and, and there's also, I, sh I guess I should mention, there's also the, this is the moment, as Stéphane Gerson has studied, the moment of, of uh, um, you know, beginning of real interest in, in, in what do you do with the problem of the local within the national and, mm -hmm. and forms, early forms of regionalism and localism. And so what I, what I, tr I sort of try to wrap all of these around um, the, the question of, uh, this is a golden age where nostalgia seems to be on everybody's lips, including on doctors' lips. They're still they're churning out dissertations at a ridiculous rate on nostalgia. There, I, end, I ended up counting 
um, 70 or 80 odd medical dissertations on nostalgia and disease, which makes nostalgia the second most studied psychiatric disorder in France after hysteria in the 19th century, wow. which is quite quite remarkable um, uh, if you think about it. Um, at the same time, doctors are talking more and more about this. It's also the moment when there's a splintering, so to say, of the of the the coherence that the diagnosis had acquired during the Napoleonic Wars, because of the practice of actually having to save people's lives. Um, with that gone, the kind of squabbling theoretical debates over what this actually is reappear, um, similar in that way to what had gone on in the 18th century. But that at this point, at this by the 19th century, they're reappearing on a much broader scale on a commercial scale too, where, where all of a sudden you've got things like man, etiquette manuals latching onto this nostalgia term and, and, and integrating it into their own um, um, advice manuals on how to behave, what kind of music to listen to, what kind of um, and topics of discussion to bring up in, in mm -hmm. the salons of early bourgeois um, culture. And so what you have is a kind of éclatement of, of, of the, the coherence and nostalgia starts to um, it's, it's moment of its 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 apex, its acme of, of interest is also its moment of undoing, so to say, because it loses, it begins to really lose that um, coherence that it had in medical practice, and you see that reflected in some of the the, the, the medical sources from the the 1830s and 40s, where where you get doctors um, saying, well, are we sure that this is really a disease we want to category that we want to be using? Um, it, it it seems kind of fanciful to me. So that's really what happens um, to nostalgia, I argue, in the 30s and 40s. But what's key is that it's not a, a light flip, light switch flip. It's not. Right. It, it, it's, and that's where a point that I wanted to make and I hope comes across that it's not as if the revolution happens, everybody's sense of temporality, everybody's regi regime of historicity changes overnight and all of a sudden we're in a modern world where the past is separated from the present and we're all nostalgic for a past we have lost. Which I'm, I'm sort of caricaturing a bit, but, but there is a sense right. in which epistemic ruptures, I, I write, I think, that epistemic ruptures, um, this is a nod to Althusser's um, autobiography, but epistemic ruptures dure longtemps, they last a long time. <laughs> they, they, they are protracted, the future lasts a long time, I think that's the, the title of Althusser's um, um, Right. Um, autobiography, but but um, but but so the, the the chapter sets the scene for the rest of the book um, and the sort of fitful, protracted process through which nostalgia changes from medical, pathological to benign, emotional, the way we know it, and that's a process that really takes us through the whole nineteenth century. I argue. Well, and this rest of the book really looks at changes in the ways that people think about nostalgia moving from this French and European context and connecting to the history of, of empire and in particular the, the conquest and colonization of, of North Africa and Algeria specifically. So yep. that's if three and four, chapters three and four are a pair of a kind, six and seven really are a pair of a kind as, right. as well. In that first nostalgia in the tropics, that chapter six, you're talking about the story of soldiers and French settlers who suffered from nostalgia during the period of conquest. So what are the kind of broad lines of the problem of nostalgia in and through the conquest and settlement of Algeria in this early period? The first thing I'd like to say about this chapter is that this is a, it's a testimony to the, the, the beauty and the, 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 the extraordinary creativity of archival research, because this is something that I did not foresee embarking upon this research on colonial huh. Algeria. Um, this was really uh, a particular source that I found in archives in Paris mentioning that these soldiers were dying of nostalgia in, in, in Algeria and that um, made me think, oh, maybe I should go to Aix-en-Provence. Why, why not? Um, to the colonial archives there. And, and um, and all of a sudden, I had a whole new um, area of research for the book, for the for the dissertation, oh. and then the book um, that ended up being arguably the most important aspect, I think, of the of, of the book. Um, mm -hmm. What I found is, well, I guess that there are two um, main things that really come into play that crystallize, I think, in Algeria. Um, on the one hand. Um, this, this, this is the moment where I was able to really sort of show that this is not just a military problem, but this is mm -hmm. also affecting civilians, the settlers who are um, um, either sent to Algeria or migrate to Algeria and end up um, 
suffering and in many cases dying of nostalgia in Algeria live in a very kind of in a very militarized, regimented world um, um, as civilians, but they're uh, subjected to the same kind of forms of, of heteronomy that um, that I, I was talking about earlier with regard to, to, to soldiers. What's, what was interesting to me about this was that this baffled, at first, um, doctors um, and ultimately led them to quite explicitly say that, well, actually, what we've been calling nostalgia is, is not just really nostalgia. It's, it's really got to do with... Um, a sense of alienation. I mean, they, don't, they, they, they almost, you know, they come within centimeters of using that word, um, and and um, uh, in the in the Marxian sense of of, of of estrangement from 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 oneself, from one's object of work, from other people um, around us. Um, they use the word obviously because they think of it as a form of madness, and so alienation in French is is the word used for for for, um, for uh, madness, including the mild variant of madness that that, that nostalgia is. Um, but but you really you you I think there you really you really I really got at what I was hoping to find from the beginning, namely that nostalgia is a medicalized form of of alienation. In, in the Marxian sense of, of, of alienation, um, so that was uh, very important um, to me. The the second thing, and this is more leading into the the, the the second chapter of this duo, is that in Algeria I felt that I was able to trace a decisive factor in the transformation of nostalgia from pathological medical to benign emotional. Um, mm-hmm. Once the, the medical discourse gets plugged into the new scientific pseudo scientific discourse of 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 racial theory and degeneration um, right. um, uh, theory and so what you see very quickly happening is we go from um, nostalgia being a pathological consequence of people who are unable to adapt to a new environment social social environmental psychological environment in in the tropics to Nostalgia, actually, perhaps it's a good thing because um, it's a sign that these French people are not going to engage in the perilous, and I'm using inverted commas everywhere here, the perilous degenerative um, creolization that comes from um, moving into a colonial world and um, absorbing the air, the atmosphere of, of Africa, and perhaps even engaging in promiscuity with native um, 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 populations and therefore sort of losing their Frenchness, diluting their Frenchness. And nostalgia ends up becoming a kind of um, uh, a wake-up call against this and, and a form of, 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 of recall to, to an original, authentic French identity. It's really fascinating how the diagnosis and the problem moves from being this you know, sign of imperial failure to take hold and decline and... Right. You know, the, the failure mm-hmm. to acclimatize is the problem, but then it becomes the way to guarantee that these Europeans won't assimilate. Right, <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, yeah. What's also fascinating to me is how this story in the imperial context connects with the story in the French national context of the relationship between the local and the national. So right. how the local, the national, and the imperial all kind of come together by the end of yep. the book. Um, you talk about the status of the global in this in this work and the way that you're moving, you know, between, I mean, the terms that appear throughout the book, local, transnational, right. national, regional. Yep. Um, and I, I really felt these things really coming together in these two chapters uh, by oh, good. the end of the book. Good. Well, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad you, you felt they came together. I, I wasn't always sure, but but definitely that was the ambition. And knowing full well that uh, I'm not trained as a colonial historian, and so there there, there are obviously um, potential um, black spots. There are things that I that I overlooked. Cer- certainly, lots of things that I overlooked. But but it seemed to me as if this transition is happening at the moment when, um, or j- I guess, just a little bit before. Um, a discourse of a sort of assimilatory discourse in the colonies gives way in part to a discourse of association, right, with with coexisting mm-hmm. um, of of, um, of of different populations and a recognition of diversity, including a sort of inscribing of diversity in in, in discriminatory legal um, in a discriminatory legal framework. Um, this this is happening at roughly the same moment when 
the 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 questions of of regionalism and nationalism are are, are coming to the fore in France, as as you were mentioning. This is of course the moment when again supposedly um, French peasants um, French peasants become become Frenchmen, but it's mm-hmm. also the moment when regionalism becomes hugely important in France, and the nostalgia ended up mediating between these different forms of 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 um, identification and association to a particular kind of France, an old France that is also a springboard for a, for a new France, and you see this. Um, I think very concretely in Algeria in the turn to recreating authentic French villages uh, in, in Algeria, um, which is something that, that obviously fascinated me uh, um, a lot and and um, and that um, I ended up trying to, to, to theorize in terms of the larger argument of the book as nostalgia being um, emblematic of a particular form of social transformation, um, but that but that I think concretely manifests this coming together of the local, the national, and the and the global um, in a concrete form as the, the this authentic French village built by the French in Algeria. So let's just return to 1884 as this nice moment at the end of the book. We, we, we talked about it at the beginning. And of course, I know that that's an important moment, but it comes together at the end of this book in ways that I hadn't, I wouldn't have thought about without thinking about nostalgia, like bringing together these last military cases, military medical cases, the adoption of Greenwich Mean Time, which of course Mm -hmm. I guess I know that's then, but wouldn't have put together with this, the scramble for Africa, the artistic Mm -hmm. avant-garde of the fin du siècle. This moment seems almost too good to be true in the sense of like a a really good moment to end the book. Yeah, It makes sense to end here, but... What do you see as some of the leaking on the other side of 1884? That's a that's that's a good question. Let, let's say that um, it it is too good to be true, and and um, it it just happened to be a convenient way to wrap up a story that didn't really have an end point. But the larger the leak, and I like the way you put it, that the the, the leaking there um, is that by by 1884, what I can think I can say is that what we have in place is our nostalgia of today roughly the the nostalgia that we've that we've had ever since then um and that that's its moment of full maturation at the dawn of a new age of capitalist um, development and what i tried to show towards the end of the book is how um, by that point nostalgia is what I'm calling a form of subjectivity that is adequate to its object that is fully adequate to the forms of temporality and 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 speciality of modern capitalist society. And what I mean by that is a kind of dialectical double movement in in terms of on the temporality side that is both the the sort of runaway, empty, homogeneous time of progress that we are generally quite familiar with and associate to to modernity, Um, but that is also another form of time that is cyclical and repetitive um, and that sort of... um, constantly dredges up the old and, and propels it into the future. And the best way, I think, to, to think about that is the endless, always new cycles of the fashion industry, where the, the old mm-hmm. is always turned into into the new. We, we generally think of nostalgia in terms of that first form of temporality, the, the, the linear, accelerating modern time that therefore cuts us off from the past and, and creates the gap for, for longing for something we have lost. But what I wanted to show was that what we have by the end of the 19th century is also that second form of temporality that makes it possible to imaginatively recall the the past and actually sort of sometimes quite concretely recreate it in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, this is I mean, something that hopefully is 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 echoing with your interests from 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 your book. Um, because what what I felt I could show in the creation of these villages in Algeria, was a sort of perfect um, encapsulation of this, whereby you you end up having multinational joint stock companies floating on the Paris stock market, many of them quite fraudulent in their in their intent and practices, engaged in the business of recreating authentic French villages in Algeria. So the, there's a kind of the, the dialectician there has a problem sort of tearing apart all the the the, the paradoxes and contradictions and ironies in that um, but what you end up having is modernity both 
superseding a form of social life, but then recreating that form of social life and propelling it in, into the future. And something similar, I, I argue, is happening in, in, in on the spatial axis, on the synchronic axis, whereby you end up having forms of, of, of sort of expansion, globalization, homogenization of space mm -hmm. within which constantly get recreated pockets of diversity and locality and, and particularity. And that, again, the villages, the, the French villages, I think, speak to that, that in, in the sort of radiating expansion of French imperialism, what you end up having are little villages of particular French villages that, that, that get reproduced um, elsewhere. Or similarly, in the way in which the, 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 the Third Republic ends up um, rather than sort of assimilating and, and destroying all regional dialects, ends up actually championing the, 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 the teaching of, of, of local languages within the context of the nation. And, and so, so you, you, you can end up having diversity within universality. So I felt that, and this is it's a difficult kind of thing to, to fully wrap one's head around and, and, and grasp, but these are the forms of temporality and spatiality that I associate, that I think are particular to the modern capitalist epoch, that I think come fully into being by the end of the 19th century, and that the transformation of nostalgia into a benign, naturalized feeling to the, to the extent, to the point that psychologists end up thinking of it as a basic emotion, as something that is fundamental to human beings, is a reflection of the fact that it is a form of subjectivity adequate, most adequate to these forms of temporality and spatiality. And that's why I think we, we, you know, we are all, we all nostalgic creatures um, today um, and quite happily live with the paradox that nostalgia is a global phenomenon, but that makes claims to a very particular form of identity that, that should not be reproducible on a global scale. So I want to ask a hugely unfair question. Oh dear. I guess it came to me as I was reading the afterward and you say something, I think parenthetically, as you're talking about our kind of contemporary tendency to separate sickness from the comfort mm -hmm. version of nostalgia. And I'm curious, actually, I don't know anything about the specific world of the medicalization or the psychological diagnoses that are accompanying descriptions of displacement and communities and migrants and I guess it's the world of trauma and PTSD and some right. of those other kinds of things now. But I just wondered, you know, as you're writing this book and presumably surrounded by a yes, kind of contemporary right. discourse of trauma, what your thoughts are on how we use this history to think with more nuance. Right. It's a very, it's it, perhaps an unfair question, but a very good question, but one that I unfortunately don't have a very good answer to. The one thing that I keep coming back to is that if if the book says anything that is of relevance today it is that i don't think nostalgia is any outside from capital mm. i don't think nostalgia is a is a provides us with a standpoint from which we may be able to envisage an alternative um, to the, the the society in which we we, we live um, mm. and in that respect i i differ from somebody like Svetlana Boim who who um, argued that the, the, you could distinguish between a, a, a reflective and, a, and um, I'm, I'm forgetting the words restorative. now. Restorative. Restorative nostalgia and reflective nostalgia and the, the restorative. The reflective nostalgia was kind of the good nostalgia. Yes. Like restorative was the bad, regressive, right-wing, reactionary kind of nostalgia. Um, I'm suspicious of that precisely because I think what the book, I hope the book shows is that both of these those movements are created within the same dialectical logic of, of capital. The, mm. the, the capital creates the possibilities for a, a reflective nostalgia, but then immediately subsumes them into a restorative nostalgia. And so I don't think, I don't think the nostalgia provides a, a, an outside from which to envisage something, um, something different. And I, I certainly agree and, 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 and uh, indulge in it myself um, that that it provides a comforting um, form of of sustenance and mm. sense of self and and um, and, the, and the, I agree with the work that psychologists um, do to neuroscientists psychologists do today that the, the basically for, for whom basically it's a it's a it's a it's a good positive emotion that 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 helps us navigate through moments of uncertainty and and, and dramatic change. 
the problem, I think, is that it, I don't think it's possible to dissociate that and keep it separate from the kind of more dislikable forms of political nostalgia that we witness, um, have witnessed repeatedly over the 20th century and live in a moment of right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, I don't think those two can be kept separate. I think they're two sides of the same coin. Um, and that the only way, um, if, if that is true, if I'm right about this, that they, they are two sides of the same coin, the only possible outcome is to get rid of both of them and um, to not look back at all, but only mm. look forward. But I realize that that sounds very grandiose and it's not necessarily something one, <laughs> one should try to try to do in practice. Um, and I certainly, I'm certainly not able to, to, as somebody who's moved around a lot and left a lot of people uh, behind, um, it's certainly something that, uh, nostalgia is certainly something that I know of at a personal experiential level um, uh, as well. Um, so, but, but, I just don't see how there's a, a critical potential in nostalgia um, in, in, because I think it is so intertwined to the, the social world of, of the, the capitalist epoch. Um, mm-hmm. I, I mean, of course, I'm, I'm assuming that what it could serve for is a, that what one would want is for it to overcome capitalism. <laughs> but, but, um, I'm with but you. <laughs> that's, that's a big assumption to make, I realize. But, but, um, but I, I just don't think it provides an adequate standpoint um, mm-hmm. from which to, to look beyond. Well, I've got one last question, Thomas, sure. which I hope is less unfair, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is what are you working on now? Oh, no, that's terribly unfair. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it would stress me out if somebody asked yes, me. It does. Well, the, the first thing I'll say is I'm working on too many things. Um, and at some point, I need to, 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 to um, discriminate a little bit and, and focus on what's most important. One thing I'm, I'm very much involved with is, and, and that I would be quite happy to, to, to mention, is a, a new French journal called Sensibilité um, mm. that I become very much involved with um and it's mostly it's mostly with french colleagues um but we're hoping to give it a little bit more exposure in the anglophone world in in the the coming years but that um really tries to explore some of these questions that we're talking about how do we integrate the world of the of affective life in in uh, in historical research and and social science more in general it's a very interdisciplinary um um, journal which has been taking up a a lot of a lot of my time the the other the, the second book that i that i need to that I, in a way I have been working on for a while, but but um, have been sort of leaving aside a lot is a micro history of. Um, this sounds very untrendy and unsexy, but it's a it's a micro history of a white male French revolutionary era soldier um, who is interesting to me insofar as he was adopted and raised to be Emile, uh, sorry Rousseau's Emile, um, and so is a kind of test case for, for social engineering in the Enlightenment. Um, what makes him even more interesting um, to the, 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 the Freudian in me is that he is obviously very much in love with his adoptive mother, but ends up returning home to marry his adoptive stepsister um, and becomes and becomes mayor of his little village in northeast in Lorraine for the rest of his life. What are you talking about that's hugely sexy already? <laughs> Sounds crazy. Maybe, maybe it is. But I, I, the other source of interest is that it took me a long time to find his wartime correspondence. Eventually, I, I found mm. it. There's, there's a whole attempt to uh, sort of right now a very preliminary thinking through of how I would write this, both as a as a as a micro history biography, but also as a a reflective piece of, of why we do what we do and why I became interested in this in this particular um, object um, of, of study. Um, and hopefully the fact that he then becomes mayor and, and I found the, 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 the municipal archives where you find where I can track his trace as a, as a, as a bureaucrat, as sort of an administrator, shall we say, um, helps me to tell the story a little bit about, um, I guess, I mean, in a way, this is a this is, of course, is a concrete family romance of the French Revolution. So I'm trying to mm-hmm. um, rework some of the themes that Lynn Hunt had, had explored um, a while ago now, um, but then fold that into what I would view as a sort of personal dialectic of enlightenment of how a revolutionary becomes a soldier, becomes an administrator, and eventually a sort of figure of a figure of authority. Um, but I think there's a story there that speaks to our time of. Um, why some people um, staunchly refuse 
the sort of overture onto the world and, and onto, onto um, encountering um, different people and instead decide to focus on their own little community and, and, and end up very sort of ident identifying very strongly with it. Obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm tying this to, to, to forms of identity politics and forms of identitarian politics that, that, that we, 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 we live with um, um, today. So, Well, that sounds... Fantasmatic and fantastic. <laughs> Good, now I just have to write it. Um, and also makes me want to remind you about your translation of Hoffer, because ah, wasn't he yes. a mayor too? <laughs> There's a mayoral There's a mayoral thread. Oh my God, now you're making me, yeah, now I'm, I'm worried about what I will become. But <laughs> well, Thomas, I just want to thank you so much for writing this book and for joining me. Thank you so much, Roxanne, for reading it and for asking me all these great questions. You've been listening to New Books in French Studies, a podcast series on the New Books Network.